The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. I got a fan today. Thank you, Miguel, for bringing a fan for me. Hope everybody's good. The weather is great. Welcome to those of you guys who are online, and uh, we're glad you're joining us this morning. If you happen to bring a Bible today, if you have it, turn it to, turn it on, the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue a series this morning that we started last week. It's a series through the book of Acts. We may not make it all the way through the book of Acts. There's 28 chapters. We don't have that much time this fall, but I think it's an important series. It's important for us to really discover the church and and what God says about his church and what he's asking us and calling us to be as a church. I think it's important, especially now, the season that we're walking through culturally, but it's also important for us as a church here at Story City given the season that we are going to walk through here in the next few months together. I think in the last few months, the last six months, as we've walked through this pandemic, the church, as I watch guys speak about it globally, the church is being described in ways that I don't think are helpful. It's different. The church is being described in different ways. And I do think the church needs to begin to adapt some some different things, some different philosophies, some different ways of, of being church. But I think there's some ways we're talking about church in our culture that just are not helpful. And so I think this is an important season for us really to walk through Acts together to see what God says about his church, who we are supposed to be. And so last week we walked through Acts chapter one, verse one through eight. We ended with verse eight that said, and you will receive power, Andy read it this morning, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit of the living God comes on you. And then he says, you will be my witnesses where locally, regionally, nationally, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see in the opening pages of the book of Acts, the mission is the thing. The mission comes first. We don't even see a description of a church, of a local body of believers. We don't even see that until we get to Acts chapter two, which we're going to look at today. But the mission came first. The mission was critical. And the mission was for people to be empowered by the Spirit of God, to take the mission, to take the gospel, to take God's message to the ends of the earth. And so the early church gathered around this mission. It's what we've gathered around as a church for four and a half years. It's what we will continue to gather around for years to come. It's who we are as a church We don't exist because we are a church. We exist because God has given us a mission. One pastor said, one pastor said, God doesn't have a mission for his church. This is good. God doesn't have a mission for his church. God established a church for his mission. And when we begin to think about the church and what God asks of us and what he requires of us and who he's shaping us to be, it's important to keep the mission as central. And so what we saw in chapter one is that the Holy Spirit of God was the power. It's the wind behind the local church. And we're going to see it again in Acts chapter 2 and then in Acts chapter 3 and, and all throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit of God, this theme is going to resonate over and over and over again. The Spirit of God is empowering the people of God to fulfill the mission of God. And so what's important here this morning is that we're also going to see the power of the Spirit of God once again, but we're going to see how the Holy Spirit empowers, now listen to me, and how the Holy Spirit births 
the first church. And I think we're going to see a few things about the first church. When you read the Bible, by the way, it's good to know that there are descriptive things in the Bible. They describe principles. They describe, uh, they make detailed descriptions. But then when we come to parts of the Bible, the Bible is prescriptive. In other words, this is how it should be. And so when we think of the early church, these four things that we're going to see here this morning, this is how the church should be. This is who the church should be. This is who the church was when the church was birthed. This is how the church was a thousand years ago. This is how the church should be today in Los Angeles. And so I think it's so good. And I want us to bear down on this passage today. And I want us to ask ourselves, can I see these things? Now, listen, can I see these things in me personally? And have I experienced these things in this church? I think this is such a good series because you're here. Why? You're not just here because we're gathering outside and somebody's singing and somebody's teaching. You're here because we are a church and we want to function like a church and we want to be a church. And so Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 gives us a prescription of what every church should be. There are four distinguishing marks we see in these five verses, and I want to give them to you this morning. I'm going to start in verse 43. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to, I'm going to start in verse 43, but I'm going to come back to verse 42 in just a moment. So we're going to see the first distinguishing mark in verse 43, and let me read it for you this morning. And the Bible says, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, the description here of the church is that they are filled with awe. That they saw miracles, they saw signs, they saw wonders. In essence, they were experiencing the presence of God. People were brought into a relationship with God. We see in verse 47 and the verses preceding this. Now listen to me. This is a description. This is a description of a church that is experiencing God. It's the first distinguishing mark of what a church should be. A church should experience the power and the presence of God. Do you know that not every church experiences the power and the presence of God? Every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors every single year. We've seen it happen over and over again, even here in Los Angeles, even in our area regionally, even here in Burbank. I was with a group of pastors on Thursday and one of them in North Hollywood, he pastors a church in North Hollywood. He said, even in our just little tiny region here, Burbank, North Hollywood, we've seen five churches that have died in the last few years. Not every church experiences the power and the presence of God. And so when we see churches close the doors, we have a tendency to play the blame game. Well, let's just blame it on the culture around us. Well, you know, we we live and we work in a secular culture. And so that secular culture is not conducive to a church that would grow up and thrive. Or we say things like, you know, it's tempting to blame politics. We know in California, we live in a very politically charged culture. And so it's, it's difficult to bring people together and for a church to grow and for a church to thrive. It's tempting to blame outside forces and culture for a declining and a non-influential church. But may I say to you, if external forces and God-opposing cultures were the reason for churches dying, may I say to you this morning, we would have no churches. No churches. No churches would exist 
at all. Do you know some of the greatest periods of expansion and growth in the history of the church take place in the midst of adversarial cultures? Churches aren't hindered by the presence of adverse circumstances. Churches are hindered when we lack the presence of God. Churches are hindered when we lack the power of God among us. When the church of God lacks the power of God individually among us, you can almost guarantee a church is going to decline. A church is going to die. A church is going to become irrelevant. I have a pastor friend in Kansas City. And uh, about 12 years ago, he was uh, moving into Midtown Kansas City to plant a brand new church. He encountered a, um, a church that existed in Midtown with a beautiful and, and an ancient building. And, and they had been around for 175 years. And as he began to engage with them, he began to realize that the church was dead. It had died. And so, and so when he moved into Kansas City, he, he, he discovered all of these things. And the reality is if, if facilities necessitated, uh, uh, were required. Let me just use that word. <laughs> necessitated. Uh, forget it. I just, if, if facilities were required for a thriving church, they had it. If ministering in a, in a culture conducive to Christianity was required for a church to, to, to be healthy and to thrive and to live, well, they were in a conservative community in Missouri. If having a long history of ministry was, was, was a prerequisite for a church, just seeing the power and the presence of God, well, they had it. They were 175 years old, yet the church was dead. No life, no activity. No one being saved. Nobody called into ministry. Nobody serving the city. And so Kevin came in and the very first Sunday of leading his church, they had come together. The church said, you know what? Why don't you just, why don't you just take over our facilities and start your church in these facilities? And so the very first Sunday he was in Kansas City, he hosted a funeral service for a church. And he invited everybody who had ever been a part of this particular church in Midtown, Kansas City to come together and, and they eulogized, they officially eulogized a church that had passed and a church that needed to be buried. The next Sunday, they opened the doors of the church, a new church. There were more people there that Sunday than the church had seen in decades. In the 12 years since they have planted a church in Midtown, Kansas City, they've literally seen the neighborhood transformed. The church literally bought up buildings around them and provided low rent to new businesses, no rent to, to, to a group of artists, just provided space for them. They've literally seen the neighborhood transformed. They've seen businesses started. They've seen marriages healed and restored. They've seen hundreds and hundreds of people come to faith in Christ and baptized. The church is now thriving in three different locations spread out across Missouri. I've been to the church. I've been in a worship service in the church. I've been in staff meetings in the church. And I can tell you one thing is obvious in the church. The power and the presence of God is there. The power of God is in their leadership team. The presence of God is obvious in their worship services. It's not the only reason churches die, but churches will die every day without the presence of God among us. 
Story City will cease to exist if we are not individually cultivating the presence of God in our daily lives. The Bible tells us here the early church saw God. They saw God. They were captured by the wonders and the miracles. They experienced his power. They experienced his work. The church was filled with wonder and amazement about the work of God among them. We see in Acts chapter 3, Peter encounters a homeless, disabled man. And Peter says to him, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I'll give to you. So in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the homeless, disabled man stood up and walked. Acts chapter 5, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. The angel said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. The early church was experiencing the power and the presence of God. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe. They weren't filled with awe because the preacher is on preacher sneakers on Instagram. They weren't filled with awe because the worship leader has a record label. What's happening here is that the early church has a sense of the divine presence. The first church had a sense of power because of the presence of God being among them. There's something supernatural happening. They can see it. They can feel it. They all felt it. What was it? Jesus was near. The spirit of God was present. He was obvious. He was evident. More than that, listen to me, more than that, they were, collectively, they were feeling the presence of God. But the scripture tells us individually, they're cultivating the presence and the power of God. They're hearing the word. They're obeying the word. They're praying. They're fellowshipping together. God was in the house. Is God in your house? Does God have access to every room of your house, every closet of your house, every door of your house, every remote in your house, every cabinet in your house? Is God in your house? Are you experiencing the power and the presence of God? In 2014, I was a full-time staff member at a church in Atlanta. I was in full-time ministry and I was traveling quite a bit back then as well and speaking at different places. And so one particular weekend in January of 2014, I was, I was supposed to be speaking uh, for three or 400 people in, in Arkansas. And, and on Thursday, before I flew out on Friday, they called and said, hey, we've had a blizzard. Um, the camp that we were supposed to be at has canceled, um, but no worries. We've already negotiated something. We're actually just going to move the camp to Oklahoma. And so what was going to be a flight into Arkansas, a short drive to the camp, became a flight into Arkansas and a five-hour drive into another state. And so at the time, I was full-time ministry. I was also traveling every month, not nearly every week, but quite frequently. And this was a weekend when I got that phone call. I said, I just, I don't want to (laughs) go. I want to be home with my family. I was traveling a lot. I just want to be home. I don't want to go. And so, but I had to go anyway. I was committed to it. And so when I got to the camp, I flew in, got my rental car, drove to the camp. When I got to the camp, I realized my phone didn't work. 
because they didn't have cell phone service. I didn't have internet. I couldn't check my email. I couldn't even call my wife and my kids. I was literally in a wilderness. (laughs) You know, God has done some good things in people's wildernesses. Some of you are walking through a wilderness. I had nothing but time and God that weekend. And so Saturday night, I was preaching from a familiar passage in Acts chapter 7. I preached it all around the country to students all around the country in camps, events, conferences. I preached it, and the title of the message was, What Are You Willing to Risk? It's the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And the challenge that night is, what are you willing to risk to allow God to use you in the gospel, in your life, and those around you? And so... I thought, well, I've, I've done this a hundred times. I preached the message. That particular night, the youth pastor wanted the students to respond, have a response time. And so what he did is he put sheets of paper around the auditorium. He said, after the message tonight, I want you to grab a sheet of paper and I want you to write on it what God is saying to you, how God has spoken to you this weekend. And so I preached the message. I gave the invitation. There's sheets of paper laying around. You can respond to what God's saying. I went to the back of the room. And as the music began, I can only describe it this way. The presence and the power of God met me. My wife and I had already committed to plant a church. We just didn't know where. And that weekend, as I only had time and God, I thought I was there to help students meet God, but God responded to me in that moment. He showed up in power. I could feel his presence. I was in awe of the presence of God. I have the sheet of paper. It's still in my office. If you come to my office over the next few months, it's a white sheet of paper and it's written and it's just simply written. L-A, God, my yes is on the table. God's power and his presence showed up. Have you ever had a moment where you sense the presence of God in you and among us? Church, listen to me. We need to experience the power of God. We need to experience the presence of God among us. We need to experience it personally before we ever get to Sunday morning. Experience it personally. And we bring his presence into our times corporately. That's what the early church experienced. That that was their experience. That's what every thriving and living church on the planet experiences. But it starts with us individually. How do you experience the power of God in your life individually? Well, verse 42 that I skipped over. Let's go back to that for just a moment. Let me read it to you. It precedes the all that they experienced. And this is what it says. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Number one, they loved God's word. How do you experience the power and the presence of God? They loved God's word. They they couldn't wait for church to open up in Pickwick Gardens. They couldn't wait for church to come online to hear the teaching of the word of God, but they also couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and pour over the power of God's word. They were committed to being under the word of God taught. They were committed to it being applied. They were committed to it bringing life to them. They were also loving each other's presence. 
That's what it says here. They were were committed to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Verse 42 says fellowship. It's the word koinonia. It also says they were committed to the breaking of bread. We'll describe that in a moment. But what they're experiencing here is common edifying fellowship. That the body has... And when there's this common edifying fellowship, there's this power that's harnessed where God's power is displayed in each of us for each of us. They loved each other's presence. And then verse 42 also says they gave themselves to prayer. They prayed corporately in the temple. They prayed individually and personally in their homes. They prayed for people who were sick. They prayed for people who were persecuted. They prayed for their meals. They prayed. It's a reminder that communion with God affected the power of God among them. When you commune with God, hundreds of us here today online, when we commune with God personally and we come together, God's power displayed in each of us for each of us and they cultivated it also through prayer. Are you cultivating the power and the presence of God in your life? That was the first distinguishing mark of the early church. They experienced the power and the presence of God. And if you're not experiencing the power and the presence of God, listen to me. You're just experiencing religious activity. And God knows and you know and I know and we know none of us need more religious activity. We need the power and the presence of God. And because they experienced the power of God among them, I want us to read also here in verse 44 what they also experienced. Experienced the power in the presence of God. Verse 44 tells us something else. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Listen to me. When the power of God is absent, the preferences of people will rule a church. When the power of God is absent, the preferences of people will rule a church. But listen to me, church. When Christ is at the center, when Christ is being exalted, when the Holy Spirit of the living God is empowering his people, it's exceedingly difficult for people to be selfish. It's exceedingly difficult for us to put ourselves before other people. Now listen. When you are consistently not unified with God's people, hear me. When you are consistently not unified with God's people, it's an indication that you are also very likely, probably also not unified with Christ. Ministry over 15 to 20 years, it just, it just happens you meet with people and they say, I, I, I'm coming to your church. I want to, I'm giving your church a shot. I hate it. I'm giving your church a shot because I know what I know what's going to happen six months from now. They're going to be giving somebody else's church a shot. And I've just seen it. I've heard it. I've experienced it. People say, I, I've been to eight different churches and I've been hurt. I've been let down. And I don't want to discount the fact that we can let you down and any church in America can hurt you. And the reason is because we're all sinners. When you put a bunch of sinners together, the inevitability is that we are going to eventually hurt each other. But when you've been through eight churches who have all hurt you, then the problem is you're probably not unified with God's people, which is an indication you're probably also not unified with Christ. 
Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now listen, there's an inherent implication. There's an inherent implication of the way the early church is described here in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Verse 42 says they were devoted to fellowship. Verse 44 says they were together and had everything in common. There is an important implication, listen to me, of what a church is and what a church is not. The church is a group of people who covenant together with each other. The church is not, well, I just get together with a couple buddies and we listen to preaching podcasts. The church is not, well, on Sundays, that's really my family time, and, and, and probably two to three Sundays a month, we do our own thing at the mountains or at the beach, but it's really good to be connected to a local church. The church is not, I don't need a group of people to be united with Christ. I want to say to you very humbly and compassionately, yet passionately, you have no idea how much you need people. And besides, it's not always about you. And so we need to stop evaluating our lives by what we get out of it. What do I get out of something? We need to stop evaluating every aspect of life by what I take from something that I'm quasi committed to. Do you know being the center of your own selfish little tiny universe is why family life isn't good. It's why marriage isn't good. It's why your experience at church isn't good. It's why being a part of a small group isn't good. The Bible says the first church devoted themselves to each other. They were together. They had everything in common. The church was unified because they love being together. So the first church experienced the power and the presence of God. They also experienced this uncommon unity, but because they loved each other, it's not a stretch to see what else was essential to the life of the first church. I want you to read it here in verse 45. Verse 45 says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. We like to read really quick through this verse. Western culture has a lot of difficulty processing this verse. Yes, they gave away their money. And guess what else? They were happy about it. They were happy about it. Why? Because they found something better than money. It's the complete opposite of our current culture. So it's the, look, I had you engaged. I see some of you guys looking away. It's okay. It's all right. It's the complete opposite of our current culture. The first church gave their money away. The average American spends $1.26 for every dollar we earn with an average personal debt, not including your mortgage, of $38,000. CNBC says 20% of Americans spend 50 to 100% of their monthly income on debt repayment alone. That's shocking. 
13% is spent on clothing and personal care. 13% is spent on hobbies. 15% is spent on eating out and nightlife. Now, let me say something to you as your pastor. And I love you with all of my heart. But it's possible that people can't be generous because we worship ourselves and our stuff. You show me a church that's generous with their money and I'll show you a church where the gospel has taken root in glad and generous hearts. Has the gospel convinced your heart that there's more joy in sharing than there is in stuff? I know you don't like me preaching about this, but you need to hear it this morning. It's a distinguishing mark of the first church. If you want to experience true community, May I say to you, generosity is not something when you have excess. Generosity is not something when you just have, when you worked overtime this week and you got a little more, so you're going to throw a little bit towards the church or, or towards need. Generosity is not something that you do when you have an abundance or when you come across excess or when you get a stimulus check. Generosity is not something when you have extra. Generosity is something that you prioritize before you ever spend. put it in the budget. The modern church wants to debate whether the tithe is still in effect. Or should we just practice grace giving? We just give whatever we want to give. May I say to you, I have major problems with this discussion. Not because I have one preference over the other, which I do, but I have major problems with this discussion because the first church was trying to figure out how they could give it away. The modern church is trying to figure out how we can keep it for ourselves. Now, let me caveat here and just say Story City Church is a very generous church. You're a very generous church, and this may not apply to all of us, but I'm describing what the first church looks like. I want you to understand this, that as a church, I'm talking about our church, Story City Church, as a church, as a church, we decided very early on that we were going to tithe off of everything that we take in. And so four and a half years ago, when we launched a church in Burbank, uh, you were giving and, and we had a deficit. We didn't have extra. We didn't have excess. We didn't have abundance. We had a deficit. We couldn't pay our own bills. We were dependent on people from the outside helping us pay our bills. So we had a deficit. But even in the very beginning, we said 10% of our income from everybody who gives in our church is going to go out. We're going to give it away. Here's what I believe. Here's, here's what I believe. If we keep our money to ourselves, then we're probably going to keep the gospel to ourselves as well. And I don't want to be a pastor of a church that keeps the gospel to ourselves. And so every day, every Sunday, when you give a dollar, 10% of that dollar goes out. Let me tell you where some of that money goes out to and has been going out for four and a half years. We specifically support church plants in our city. Five of them we've specifically planted, but also inherent in that 10% we give away is generically going to church planting in our city. It's also going to church planting in North America broadly. It's going to support missionaries and church planters internationally. My former assistant, Sherry, who a lot of you guys know, she's in Europe as a missionary, and she's being funded by a portion of every dollar you give and a portion of every dollar given in, in every church in our denomination across our, our country today. A portion of every dollar you give also goes to train future pastors and leaders. 
Now, let me say to you, you say, Matt, that doesn't really make sense. If I don't have enough, why would I give away? The answer is because the gospel is so glorious and so wonderful that we can't keep it to ourselves. The other answer is that the very nature of what Christ did for us was that he didn't give 10%, he didn't give 50%, he didn't give 80%. He gave all of himself to us. And if you're not a generous person, you're certainly not like Jesus. Years before I ever became a Christian, at the age of 17, but years before that, I would sit in church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and my dad would sit on the right, he'd sit at the end of the pew, my mom would sit to the left of me, and my sister would sit somewhere in between us. And so every Sunday when the church would pass the offering plate, this is before you could text in your giving and give online and, and all these creative ways we can give now. We, we physically gave in person. And so the deacon would come by and he'd drop the plate in my dad's hand. My dad would drop an envelope with his tithe and his offering, and my dad would take that plate and he would pass it to me, and it would go through my hands, and I would pass it on to my mother. And I look back as a kid, we, we weren't a rich family at all. We were probably a lower middle class family. If anything, we lived in a 1,600 square foot house in a very rural and, and small town in South Carolina. But I'm grateful for a mom and dad who taught me that God is good and God is kind and God is generous and God is faithful even when we give away what little we had. And maybe you've never been around that type of generosity this morning. Maybe you've no one has ever taken the time to walk you through what it looks like to be a generous Christian and how you can give away much of what you have while God can still be faithful. If you're not a generous person today, may I say, I pray that God will convict you and I pray that God will convince your heart and your soul that being a generous person is part of the joy of being a part of his local church, is part of the joy of being a believer. And if you've never been around somebody who's taught you about biblical generosity, I, 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 want, I would love to point you to one of our elders in our church. He and his wife, they moved here from Atlanta. They have no kids. They moved here from Atlanta, and, and, and they are some of the most generous people I know. They still live in the city because they came here with a missionary heart. They wanted to be a part of a church that's planting churches. And if you've never been around somebody who's taught you about generosity, Bob and Lisa Phillips, I didn't even ask them. I just said it today. They are some of the most generous people I've ever met. They take people through what it looks like to live generously, live in a way where your finances honor God. I would love to connect you with them and allow them to walk with you in this area of life. That's the third thing. They were generous. Now here's the fourth description and we're almost done. They experienced life together. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere Hearts. And so they met in the temple for teaching from the apostles, and then they shared meals together. Now listen to this. They shared meals together, and they actually enjoyed it. They actually enjoyed it. 
um, I, I sit on the line between introvert and extrovert. I'm right in the middle. So I, I, can, I can go extrovert at times. I can go introvert most of the time. And some of the sweetest times over the last five and a half years have been times when I said, oh, I've got this dinner tonight. I've got this thing tonight. But when I get there, some of the sweetest, most encouraging, most enjoyable moments over the last five and a half years is when I've been around the table with people, at a pool party with people, at a gathering with you. Verse 46 says, every day, the relationship to each other was a, listen to me, the relationship to each other was a day-to-day reality. Many people in the modern church live on a week-to-week reality. God forbid some of us live on a month-to-month reality. And even worse, some of us live on a Easter to Christmas reality. The early church lived on a day-to-day reality. Why? Because Christ was a living reality to them. Christ affected every piece. He affected every portion of their life. Here's, what we, here, here's how we live our lives. We live such compartmentalized lives, don't we? And I know modern culture and society and the cities we live in, they all mitigate against biblical community, but we live such compartmentalized lives. We have our work life and our work friends. We have our workout and our gym friends. We got our hobby friends. And then we have our church friends. In the first church, the reality of church friends intersected the sacred and it intersected the secular. Their church friends knew their work friends. Their church friends knew their hobby friends. Their church friends knew their workout friends. Their church friends knew their other friends. The most important, the most life-giving relationships in the body of Christ with those inside the church crossed over into every other area. How could it not? The spirit of the living God, the power, that's where we started Acts chapter one. The power of the spirit of God was so sacred, so important, so vital. It didn't matter if they gathered with people who were multi-generational. It didn't matter if they gathered with people who didn't work in the same industry. It didn't matter if they gathered with people who have kids and who don't have kids. What mattered was that the Spirit of God is what they had in common and their lives intersected every other area of life. Life wasn't compartmentalized. It wasn't just the sacred and the secular. The sacred life of the church body intersected every portion of their experience. How do you know that to be true, Pastor Matt? Because verse 47 tells us they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now listen to this. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. We've sort of come to a crisis moment in Western Christianity where 
fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people are coming to faith in Christ and we're seeing fewer and fewer life change and we have this tendency to say, well, we have secular cultures, we have divided politics. The reality is, the reality is we're lacking the presence and the power of God. Our lives are so compartmentalized. The mission of God cannot go forward. But in the first church, people's lives were being transformed by the gospel. Why? There's no segregation. There's no, there's no, there's no compartmentalization of life where, where church just fits in one box on one day, in one month, or twice a year. And so this life-giving, this life-breathing, this life-altering reality of the body of Christ propelled them what? Where? into the mission of God. Back to the mission of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Los Angeles, and to the ends of the earth. It's being fulfilled in their midst. The mission of God is being fulfilled in their midst because there's a people experiencing the presence of God. They're experiencing unity. They're experiencing generosity. They're living life together and they're actually enjoying it. Now think about that. Think about that because when I read one of those or three of those or all four of those, think in your mind how many of us are thinking, wow, I've never experienced, I've never experienced that kind of generosity. I've never actually experienced where I actually love being. Think about all four of those things coming together. Foundationally under Jesus Christ, the presence of God in their life. What a powerful witness to people living around them so powerful Jesus is adding to the church daily there are days when there are days when I sort of lament the the modern western church I'm not so down on the church though that I've given up or, or I don't believe in it. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I, I still believe with all of my heart that the local church is the hope of the world through Jesus Christ living in us and among us in such a way that the Holy Spirit of God is empowering us and intersecting every area of our life. And the result is that God can do what God intended to do with every single church on the planet. God did not create a mission for the church. God created a church for his mission. And we can still experience everything that first church experienced. When I read this, I'm just just fired up. God, this this is it. And we experience a lot of this in our church. So please hear me. I'm not preaching down to you and preaching at you today there's a lot of this that that I need to be challenged on as well but when I read it I'm so fired up because I think this is it I want to live among a unified body of believers I want to share with other generous Christians I want to live life together and enjoy it I want to experience the power of God among us I believe it's still possible must start with each of us experiencing the powerful presence of God among us individually, daily.
Do you want that? Do you want that today? If you're a believer today, I I hope there's a resounding yes in your heart that the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to you about today. And if there are areas of these four distinguishing marks that you say, I'm just not there yet. I've separated myself from the body of Christ. I'm not a generous person. I'm not cultivating the presence of God daily. Then I pray that you would allow the Spirit of God to deal with you today in a way that only He can. But lastly, may I say to you, if you've never given your life to Jesus today, if you've never repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus, But the Spirit of the living God takes a dead heart and makes it beat again and allows it to come to life and gives you new life in Christ. Can I ask you to do that today? Why would you delay? This is everything your heart has ever wanted. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. We don't make you stand up here and say anything you don't want to say. It's just a moment that you have with the Lord where you express before the Lord that, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. My sin has separated me from you. But because of what you did on the cross, Jesus, I trust my life to your death, your burial, your resurrection. And because you overcame sin and death, I know you can forgive me of my sins. And so today, Jesus, I desire to be saved. If you've never had that moment, I ask you to experience it today. There's a staff member here, Marco, sitting back here underneath one of our tents. He and his wife, Sarah, would love to help walk you through what it means to become a believer. I'll be here Several of us will be around. We'd love to help walk you into that. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your passage today. Thank you for your word. It's so sweet. It's so convicting. So good for us to hear. God, would you continue to establish that type of church here at Story City Church? God, you've already done it. We've seen it in a million ways. Generosity, the presence of God, living life together, Would you continue to establish us in that today, God? In the season that we're in, in the season ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.